Chapter 14 of Cripps the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14. So is Mr. Sharp. On the very next day it was known throughout the parish and the neighborhood that the ancient squire had broken down at last under the weight of anxieties. Nobody blamed him much for this, except his own sister and Mr. Smith. Mrs. Firmitage said that he ought to have shown more faith and resignation, and John Smith declared that all his plans were thrown out by this stupidity. What proper inquiry could be held when the universal desire was to spare the feelings and respect the affliction of a poor old man? Mr. Smith was right. An inquest truly must be held upon the body which had been found by the soldiers but the coroner, being a good old friend and admirer of the Oglanders, contrived that the matter should be a mere form, and the verdict an open nullity. Mr. Luke Sharp appeared, and in a dignified reserve, was ready to represent the family. He said a few words in the very best taste, and scarcely dared to hint at things which must be painful to everybody left alive to think of them. How the crush of tons of rock upon an unprotected female form had made it impossible to say, and how all the hair, which more than any other human gift survived the sad, sad change, having been cut off, was there no longer, and how there was really nothing except a pair of not-over-new silk stockings, belonging to a lady of lofty position in the county, and the widow of an eminent gentleman, but not required, he might hope, to present herself so painfully. Mr. Sharp could say no more, and the jury felt that he now must come, or, failing him, his son, Kit Sharp, into the 150,000 pounds of port wine fermitage. Therefore they returned the verdict, carried in his pocket by them, death by misadventure of a young lady, name unknown. Their object was to satisfy the squire and their conscience, and they found it wise, as it generally is, not to be too particular, and the coroner was the last man to make any fuss about anything. "'Are you satisfied now, Mr. Overshoot?' asked Lawyer Sharp as Russell met him in the passage at the Quarry Arms, where the inquest had been taken. "'The jury have done their best, at once to meet the facts of the case and respect the feelings of the family.' "'Satisfied? How can I be? Such a hocus-pocus I never knew. It is not for me to interfere while things are in this wretched state. Everybody knows what an inquest is.' No doubt you have done your duty and acted according to your instructions. Come in here where we can speak privately. Mr. Sharp did not look quite as if he desired a private interview. However, he followed the young man with the best grace he could muster. I am going to speak quite calmly and have no whip now for you to snap, said Russell, sitting down as soon as he had set a chair for Mr. Sharp. But I may ask you why you have done your utmost to prevent what seemed, to an ordinary mind, the first and most essential thing. The identification? Yes, of course. Will you come and satisfy yourself? The key of the room is in my pocket. I cannot do it. I cannot do it, answered the young man, shuddering. My last recollection must not be. Young sir? I respect your feelings, and I need to ask you, after that, whether I have done amiss in sparing the feelings of the family. And there is something more important than even that at stake just now. You know the poor squire's sad condition. The poor old gentleman is pretty well broken down at last, I fear. What else could we expect of him? 
and the doctor his sister had brought from London says that his life hangs positively upon a thread of hope. Therefore, we are telling him sad stories, or rather I ought to say happy stories, and though he is too sharp to swallow them all, they do him good, sir, they do him good. I can quite understand it, but how does that bear? I mean, you could have misled him surely about the result of this inquest? By no means. You would have insisted on seeing a copy of the Herald. In fact, if the jury could not have been managed, I had arranged with the editor to print a special copy giving the verdict as we wanted it. A pious fraud, of course, and so it is better to dispense with it. This verdict will set him up again upon his poor old legs, I hope. He seemed to dread the final blow so, and the bandying to and fro of his unfortunate daughter's name. I scarcely see why it should be so, but so it is, Mr. Overshoot. Of course it is. How can you doubt it? How can it be otherwise? You can have no good blood in you. I beg your pardon, I speak rashly, but I did not mean to speak rudely. All I mean to say is that you need no more explain yourself. I seem to be always doubting you, and it always shows what a fool I am. Now, don't say that, Mr. Luke Sharp answered with a fine and genial smile. You are acknowledged to be the most rising member of the county bench. But still, sir, there is such a thing as going too far with acuteness, sir. You may not perceive it yet, but when you come to my age, you will own it. Truly, but who can be too suspicious when such things are done as these? I tell you, Sharp, that I would give my head off my shoulders this very instant to know who has done this damned villainy, this infernal, unnatural wrong to my darling, to my darling. Mr. Overshoot, how can we tell that any wrong has been done to her? No wrong to take her life? No wrong to cut off all her lovely hair and to send it to her father? No wrong to leave us as we are, with nothing now to care for? You spoke like a sensible man just now. Oh, don't think that I am excitable. Well, how can I think otherwise? But do me the justice to remember that I do not for one moment assert what everybody takes for granted. It seems too probable, and cannot for the present at least be disproved, that here we have the sad finale of the poor young lady, but it must be borne in mind, on the other hand, the body. The thing could be settled in two minutes. Sharp, I have no patience with you. So it appears. And making due allowance, I am not vexed with you. You mean, of course, the interior garments, the nether clothing, and so on. There is not a clue afforded there. We have found no name on anything. The features and form, as I need not tell you. I cannot bear to hear of that. Has any old servant of the family? Has the family doctor? All those measures were taken, of course. We had the two oldest servants. But the one was flurried out of her wits, and the other three quarters frozen. And you know what a fellow old splinters is, the crustiest of the crusty. He took it in bitter dudgeon that Sir Anthony had been sent for to see the poor old squire. And all he would say was, Yes, 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 you'd better send for Sir Anthony. Perhaps he could bring, oh, of course he could bring my poor little pet to life again. And then we tried her aunt. Mrs. Fermitage, one of the last two who had seen her living, 
but bless you, my dear sir, a team of horses would not have lugged her into the room. She cried, she shrieked, and fainted away. Barbarous creatures, she said. You will have to hold another inquest if you are so unmanly. I could not even see my dear husband. And then she fell into hysterics, and we had to send two miles for brandy. Now, sir, have we anything more to do? Shall we send a litter or a coffin for the squire himself? You are inclined to be sarcastic, but you have taken a great deal upon yourself. You seem to have ordered everything. Mr. Luke Sharp everywhere. Will you tell me who else there was to do it? It has not been a very pleasant task, and certainly not a profitable one. I shall reap the usual reward to be called a busybody by everyone, but that is a trifle. Now, if there is anything you can suggest, Mr. Overshoot, it shall be done at once. Take time to think. I feel a little tired and in need of rest. There has been so much to think of. You should have come to help us sooner, but no doubt you felt a sort of delicacy about it. The worthy juryman's feet at last have ceased to rattle in the passage. My horse will not be here just yet. You will not think me rude if I snatch a little rest, while you consider. For three nights I have had no sleep. Have I your good permission, sir? Here is the key of that room, meanwhile. Russell Overshoot was surprised to see Mr. Sharp draw forth a large silk handkerchief with spots of white upon a yellow ground and spread it carefully over the crown of his long, deep head and around his temples down to the fine gray eyebrows, then lifting gaitered heels upon the flat white bar of the iron fender, the weather being as cold as ever. In less than a minute Mr. Luke Sharp was asleep beyond all contradiction. He slept the sleep of the just, with that gentle whisper of a snore which Aristotle hints at to prove that virtue being, as she must be, in the mean, doth in the neutral third of life maintain a middle course between loud snore and silent slumber. If Mr. Sharp had striven hard to produce a powerful effect, young Overshoot might have suspected him, but this calm, good sleep and pure sense of rest laid him open for all the world to take a larger view of him. No bad man could sleep like that. No narrow-minded man could be so wide to nature's noblest power. Only a fine and genial soul could sweetly thus resign itself. The soft content of well-earned repose spoke volumes in calm silence. Here was a good man, if ever there was one, at peace with his conscience, the world, and heaven. Overshoot was enabled thus to look at things more loftily, to judge a man as he should be judged when he challenges no verdict, to see that there are large points of view which we lose by worldly wisdom and by little peeps through selfish holes, too one-eyed and ungenerous. Overshoot could not bear the idea of any illiberality. He hated suspicion in anybody, unless it were just, as his own should be. In this condition of mind he pondered while the honest lawyer slept, and he could not think of anything neglected or mismanaged much in the present helpless state of things. End of chapter 14